For part one of this episode, we zoomed out on whole child education, thinking big picture about what the whole child actually means for not only education, but also the policies our kids deserve to be successful. Today, we're trying to understand why it's good for our kids to be talking about Shakespeare in the hallways and why breaking the rules is sometimes what's best for our kids. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase from Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Dr. Shauna Cook is exactly the kind of person you want teaching your kids, leading a school or even a county office of education. We worked together for several years at a national think tank called the Learning Policy Institute. You'll hear more of her inspiring career path as a case study of whole child education. Welcome, Shauna. Hi, I'm Shauna Cook. I'm executive director of district and school support at the Sacramento County Office of Education. Um, I've been in this role for, I'm working on my third year. Mm. So I've been in education for over 20 years at this point, which I can't even believe it. I still think I'm in my 20s. Turns out I'm not. Me too, Shauna. I'm right there with you. So Shauna, tell me about your, your role now for Sacramento County. What, what does mm-hmm. that mean for folks who aren't familiar with county offices of education? Yeah. So in California, the county offices have a unique role. They kind of sit in between the State Department of Education, the State uh, Board of Education, and local school districts and charter schools. So there's 58 counties in the state of California, and each county office does a lot to support schools, teachers, learners in their respective systems. The departments that I work with and uh, support in our county office are the curriculum and instruction team, which provides all sorts of rich professional learning experiences, coaching, feedback, observations uh, to schools across our county and beyond. And then I also support our accountability team. So that's the folks that are in charge of reading local control accountability plans and uh, providing that sort of more technical uh, assistance around meeting accountability standards. So I kind of straddle those two. We also provide differentiated assistance, which is another critical lever for continuous improvement and change in the state, which is based on the California School Dashboard, which is our statewide accountability system that really communicates with education partners about how schools are doing, about how districts are doing. So it's where you get a snapshot of, you know, suspension rates, other school climate measures Mm. like attendance, chronic absenteeism, as well as Mm. state test scores. So you'll see math and English language arts test scores there for each district, um, kind of in aggregate. And then for each individual school, you can see kind of a dashboard, just like a car dashboard, where you can get a sense of how schools are doing on multiple measures. So let's bring it back to you, Shauna. So you you Mm -hmm. have you have a really, I think, fascinating history. You've taught in different states. Mm-hmm. You've been a teacher, a principal, 
a scholar, we've, you're still a scholar and a contributing <laughs> author for this book. Mm-hmm. Tell us how your upbringing shaped mm. your interests as an educator, leader, and scholar. Oh boy, that's a big question. How much time do we have? <laughs> Certainly my experience in school was a good one. I think that's probably the case for a lot of educators. We, mm. we typically do well in school and like school. And so mm. we work in schools. But I, I enjoyed school. I was one of those kids who got a test in sixth grade and was tracked into an honors track. And I didn't really understand what that meant, but I knew mm. that I was in special classes. I had a little asterisk on my report card that indicated mm-hmm. I was an honor student or I had a little H next to my classes. And, and I realized um, once I became a teacher that that really set me on a trajectory. And I didn't understand really why it was, why, why one test at one point in time when I was in sixth grade kind of landed me in advanced courses. You know, I ended up taking calculus my senior year in high school instead of pre-calculus. I was in classes with uh, other students that were in student government and in mm-hmm. the band and the choir. And it was like we were all kind of together. And when you look at the racial aspect of that, that was a very kind of salient moment for me because I remember thinking, hey, I'm the only black kid in this class mm-hmm. or only one of two black students in these honors and advanced placement courses. And at the time, I didn't understand why that was significant, but I knew I, I, I was aware of it. Mm. You know, when I got to college, I was a English major with a minor in African-American studies. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be a journalist and I'm going to write and mm. travel. And that's what I was going to do with my English degree. And then I took a course in my senior year on W.E.B. Du Bois and we read all of his works in that seminar. And I remember thinking, wow, I think education is a thing I'm interested in. Mm. Reading Du Bois and realizing some of what he was espousing in his writing really resonated for me. And I remember the opportunities that I was given as a student and wondering, hey, why wasn't everyone else given those same opportunities? And why how did I happen to take this little test in sixth grade and end up scoring well enough to get into this whole other track of schooling? Right. And I don't, I didn't think I was that special. I never felt like I was remarkably smart or anything exceptional. In fact, Mm. most of the time I felt like everyone else was way smarter than me and it just didn't seem fair. And so that really kind of pinged for me and I quickly applied (laughs) to get my teaching credential in my senior year of college and totally shifted gears and focus. Some of the best conditions for learning take place when students feel supported and understood. We can all probably think back to caring adults and teachers who had the greatest impact on our lives. But most of the time, it wasn't just necessarily that their lesson plans were fantastic but rather that they had our back. What's special about this chapter is that mentor and mentee wrote it together. Mentor being Linda Darling Hammond and mentee Shauna Cook. Actually, Linda Darling Hammond was one of my professors as I'm 22 years old, Mm. enrolled in the Stanford Teacher Education Program and yet another space where I think I was one of two African-American students in that cohort. And we had about 60 or 70 students in our cohort. Mm. At one point, Linda invited a handful of the students of color 
all different races, but students of color, to come to her house and have a meal and talk about our experience in the education program. And I don't remember all the details of that, but I do know that I felt like I had been seen. I felt like, hey, someone recognizes that my experience as a Black woman and an emerging teacher might feel a little bit different or be a little bit different than that of my colleagues and my peers. It resonated for me. Shauna has tried to lead with similar mentorship qualities that she has benefited from personally, making sure her students feel seen and supported. As I you know, entered teaching, I taught at a school that I love dearly. It's the mm. Los Angeles Center for Enriched Studies. And actually, one of my former vice principals of my high school was the principal of this school. And he, mm. you know, hired me for my first teaching job. So I already felt a connection to that school because my boss used to be my high school government teacher mm. when I was in high school. And his name was Frank Nishimura. He also saw something in me and took a chance on this 23-year-old uh, English teacher and one of the first things I did was realize that I didn't like the structure of tracking that actually existed at that school as well. And I was teaching all regular 10th and 11th grade English students, very diverse group of kids, lots of Black and Latino students, handful of white students. It was, it was kind of a sampling of the school was mm. in my classes. Uh, but I realized that the honors classes, even in this very racially mixed magnet school in LA Unified, mm. the honors and advanced placement classes were all white and Asian students. And I was like, hey, mm. wait a minute. This school is actually, in a lot of ways, is a selective admission school, and yet we're tracking here as well. Why is that? And so I broke the rules a little bit there, and I said, you know what? Instead of reading... Julius Caesar, which happened to be, I think, the 10th grade regular Shakespeare mm. book. I said, yep. you know, we're going we're gonna to read Macbeth. We're going to read the mm. honors Shakespeare book. And I'm guaranteed William Shakespeare wasn't thinking to himself, oh, this play, this Julius Caesar <laughs> is for regular kids. And this Macbeth, that's an honors play. Mm. Like, right? So I was just like, this, right. is, this whole construct is baloney. Like, I'm mm -hmm. not buying it. Mm -hmm. And so I checked out the Macbeth and we read Macbeth and I didn't ask for permission. I just did it. Mm. And I got found out by our department chair because mm. she overheard one of my regular kids debating with one of her honors kids in the hallway about the gender identity of Lady Macbeth and whether mm. Shakespeare was making a commentary on gender dynamics and gender roles and wow. what were they doing. And, I, and so she came to tell me this, furious, right, upset. And I was like, wait, you're missing the whole point. Mm. Kids were, 10th graders were having a conversation about Shakespeare in the hallway. Can totally. we just relish that moment? Right. Um, who cares what book they're reading? And so I got kind of scolded for not following the rules. And I, I remember telling the vice principal as we were in a conference, uh, she said, I, I said to her, hey, would you mind putting that in my review that mm. I taught a bunch of regular kids some honors books? Mm. I said, because like if, if you think I'm going to get me in trouble for that, I'm actually pretty proud of it. And I'm proud mm. that the kids were having a tough conversation. Anyway, so that's kind of started my uh, teaching career. Shortly thereafter, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And I remember watching on the news, thinking to myself, 
wow, what's going to happen there? What, how, like, how are people going to survive? What is, I can't imagine the devastation of having your entire city destroyed in that way and the upheaval and the trauma and the stress. And, you know, what started out as a trip to go volunteer with a colleague of mine, her name is Kristen, you know, potentially set up a senior trip, an alternative senior trip for some of our seniors Instead of going to Disneyland, we'd take them to New Orleans and they would do volunteering and a, a study trip wow. um, and learn about the history. Uh, so we went one spring break right after the hurricane to kind of set up and kind of l- get a lay of the land, get a sense of the space. What could we do? What could we organize and set up for them to go do? And both of us fell in love with the city of New Orleans. And I think anyone who's ever been to New Orleans knows exactly how that feels. You visit And you kind of get the itch and you're like, whoa, this is a special place. Mm. This is a magical place. There's nowhere else like it in the world. Long story short, we ended up moving there a few months later. We both quit our jobs in LA Unified as teachers. And we had received a fellowship uh, to support us for a year to open up a charter school. And that was the primary recovery strategy in the in the in the state but in the city in particular at that time was to create an all charter all choice system Hmm. and i didn't know much about charter schools i didn't really understand all of the layers of dynamics and politics and none of that i you know i was 27 years old when i moved there i didn't understand all i knew was i had learned a lot in school And I knew what I was seeing with my students. You know, at that time, before I left, I was also a literacy coach at another high school in LA Unified at Crenshaw High School. And I was like, look, we can make changes for kids. We can support kids. Like, why wouldn't I put myself in a position to help as much as possible? And it was a very naive position that me, this young person from California who's not from New Orleans, Mm -hmm. could possibly show up and be like, hey, guys, here I am. Let's help out. Mm -hmm. I'm here to help. Like, that's very, in retrospect, I feel like it's very um, good intentions with with not a clear sense of the impact and how that would feel for the thousands of educators already in the city who had been displaced, who had been Mm. disenfranchised, who hadn't had that support, who were running and operating and working in schools that didn't have the luxury of spend a year thinking and writing and researching and visiting schools and design your own school from the ground up. Right. That, I mean, that's the fellowship that we had. Yep. You know, I think, the city and the families and the students in our school that eventually did open in 2008, a whole lot of grace and a whole lot of, you know, patience with us as outsiders, as we tried to figure out and understand the culture and be responsive and respectful and realizing also too, that all of the planning that I had done and all of the reading and all of the, the, the handful of years of experience that I had didn't come close to preparing me to do that job well. And I realized that I had been wholly underprepared to really think and execute teaching and learning and school leadership in the conditions yeah. where students are under lots of stress, adversity, trauma. There wasn't really language for what I was seeing and feeling at the time, but I knew something had to something different was needed. It wasn't going to happen with, you know, drill and kill. We're going to do twice as much math and twice as much English and, you know, just kind of hammering down on students. And I realized then I was like, this is, 
this is going to take some strong relationships. Mm -hmm. And so we did a lot at, at the school to bring in social workers. We had two social workers in a relatively small school. We partnered with a, a nonprofit organization in the city to bring in mentors, mm -hmm. uh, New Orleanian, native New Orleanian community members who came in and ran a mentoring program for our students, you know, realizing where the gaps were and what my preparedness was, my right. expertise and like, hey, we got to find some folks to do this. Um, we need, I needed help. We did all that we knew how to do. And, and, and I think also looking back in retrospect, realizing the accountability system that we were sitting in at the time, you know, we were still under No Child Left Behind, where test scores were everything and the only thing that determined the quality and effectiveness of a school. Yep. And realizing that at that point of our ninth grade class, we had about 110 ninth graders. Yep. Over 50 of them could not read at a kindergarten level, kindergarten, first grade level. And, and the average age of our ninth grade students was also about 16, 15 and a half or 16 years old, which tells you a lot about the demographics of our student body, right? Right. They're over age, underprepared. Mm. They had just come through and experienced one of the worst tragedies imaginable, mm -hmm. where their neighborhood schools were in some parts of the city completely destroyed. And so we just had to recalibrate. It was like, all right, well, we thought we were going to be doing, uh, you know, having everyone learn Spanish their freshman year of high school. But we've got another issue to address, and that's literacy. Our students don't know how, to, most of them don't know how to read. Right. And many of them had missed a year or two of middle school prior to getting to ninth grade, or it had been interrupted or spotty, as many of them went to other cities like Houston and Atlanta, evacuated. And so we had a lot to learn and hmm. I love my students and uh, yep. I think of them often and they, they still keep in touch, some of them, but we didn't do a good enough job for them, you know, and that, that sticks with me as an educator hmm. is like, what more could I have done? Should I have done? And so that kind of brings me to this research focus that yeah. I've had for the last couple of years when we were together working at Learning Policy Institute, Joe, was this idea of bringing together kind of deeper learning, that rich, yep. meaningful learning experiences for students, plus a, a healthy, supportive school climate and culture, and kind of wrapped all together in this bow of, you know, whole child education and realizing that a lot of what I was missing at that time in New Orleans was... I didn't understand how, really understand how learning happens. I hadn't, I didn't know the science of learning and development, which we now know learning that research and being part of that research team at LPI that really dug in on that really transformed for me how schools should and could be organized. And it opened up and unlocked a potential for how do we move away from this factory model of schooling that we have at the moment that's been remarkably stable over generations where school really looks quite similar now as it did 100 years ago. Maybe it's the whole child approach that can actually get us towards a better, more responsive, uh, more research-based way of teaching and learning that attends to the needs of the whole child. So what strikes me is, as a, as a practitioner, you were instinctively setting up conditions to support the whole child, to support your students, to support your families, absent of 
the policy conditions to acknowledge how students learn and, and grow. Yeah, that policy piece was huge, right? So in our first year of testing, state testing, majority of our kids scored far below basic. I mean, if you think of it as a 100-point scale, majority were in like the low 20s. I mean, very low, 15% proficient, 20% meeting the standard. I mean, just very, very low. And I'll never forget, Joe, the second year of state testing, our students, our 10th graders jumped immensely. Their scores went from the low teens and 20s up to the mid 50s, Mm. low 60s of test scores. And I was over the moon. I was like, oh my God, that's a huge jump in proficiency, huge. But guess what? We were still considered far below basic. Mm. We, We hadn't jumped to another band, but we went from the very bottom of a band to like the very top of that band. And I was so proud of the amount of work that students had d- done and how well our teachers had created mm-hmm. condi- excellent conditions for learning. And mm-hmm. yet the accountability system didn't even notice it. The kids were still considered far below basic and, and we got punished for it. I, I'll never forget one of the district officials in the recovery school district. This was in, again in, in New Orleans. In New Orleans, uh-huh. yeah. After our first year, we were told we needed to move to another building. And I said, well, this is a whole different neighborhood. You know, it's a a bit of a more difficult neighborhood, a more challenging, a lot more unsafe neighborhood than we were in. I said, and a lot of the parents and kids that are come to our school from all over the city felt a little bit more secure coming to our school building because it was in a safer part of town. And then we were going to have to move to a less safe part of town the following year. And uh, standing on the front steps of the school building, this district representative said to me, well, if you would have gotten better test scores, maybe we would have let you stay. Wow. Get better test scores and maybe you wouldn't have to move. Wow. And I said, well, do you understand how that undermines it? Like picking up and moving an entire school? (laughs) I don't recommend it. And yet, we had to do it twice. After our first year, after our second year, we had to move again. Um, And that sort of disruption, it almost felt like punishment for not getting good enough test scores. And the other thing that we weren't willing to do, which was kind of common at the time, was we weren't willing to kick kids out at the rates that some other schools were, you know, counseling kids out. I'll say counseling out. where it's like, hey, Mm. we will suspend you or you could be expelled for this, but we won't expel you if you withdraw from school and transfer. Interesting. And so we we weren't playing that game and we attempted to really live by this open enrollment policy as the type of school that we were. And so we took everybody. And so we had kids coming from all different charter schools across the city saying, oh, I got, I withdrew and I'm here to enroll in your school. And I'm like, well, why did you withdraw in the middle of the year? oh, I had a fight, (laughs) or I had a bunch of fights. Mm. It's like, well, great. (laughs) Welcome to our school. And so, yeah, the policy conditions were particularly challenging, and it definitely felt like an uphill... It felt like we were fighting another force Mm. as opposed to having policy conditions that would provide funding and support and coaching to help us get better to help us serve the students that were in our school. 
from Alaska and California to Oklahoma, Louisiana, Massachusetts, and Georgia, states are making historic investments in comprehensive integrated models of education, also known as community schools. Schools that match the science of how we learn and grow while taking into consideration the unique needs of neighborhoods and cities. Community schools fit into a broader term of whole child policies and strategies. You'll hear more about how we shift to a whole child agenda when we come back. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote, and I made this podcast to have a conversation with you, precisely you. And so we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by this podcast. You can email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. And the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. And if you haven't clicked follow on the podcast, please do that now. Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So as we think about the chapter, Shauna, developing policy for the whole child, you think about your experience in LA teaching, your experience teaching, running a school in New Orleans, you work in the research space, now you're with the county. Like, Mm -hmm. What's the counter in the policy space that we need that that you and Linda spoke about in the chapter to get not the perfect conditions, but optimal conditions for student learning and development to dismantle these structures and systems that have existed dating back to slavery and and, and are really mm-hmm. in, in the air that we breathe yeah and the water supply yeah so what 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 do we do differently and what what did you outline I think critical first is understanding how the brain learns hmm. is understanding what's happening in the body and the brain as students develop and grow and how learning happens. And I start with that piece because it's almost like the why that sets up the rationale for changing the policies, for changing the practices. Mm. And you can't change those things, those policies and practices until you understand why you're doing it. And Mm. then you can find the right policies and the right practices that then support that healthy development for student learning and thriving Mm -hmm. within school and over the course of a lifetime. I think there's several different elements about how the brain learns that is captured in the science of learning and development. And there's a whole body of research. And at the beginning of our chapter, we outline some of those elements of uh, the science of learning and development. And there's some that really stick out to me. And I think we can do a really a better job in schools designing policies and structures that allow us to really respond to those elements of of learning. Uh, I think number one would be a focus on positive developmental relationships, really understanding that the teacher and student relationship and the student to student relationship are really critical levers to unlock learning because those those relationships can actually uh, be a bridge for motivation for example, Joe, if you're my math teacher mm-hmm. and I'm your student and I mm-hmm. really don't like math, I really hate it, but you have seen something in me that makes me feel like 
hey, I have I have some strengths. You're really glad to have me in my classroom. You greet me at the door every day when I come in. You check on me when I'm struggling. You provide me with rich feedback on my work. And you're like, hey, Shauna, I noticed you made a mistake at this step. Why don't you go back? Tell me why you made that choice. You really want to understand my rationale for mm. whatever the problem is I'm trying to solve. But at the heart of it is I, I can tell you care about me. And that care is translated to me through really high expectations. You're not watering anything down. You're not like, hey, Shauna kind of sucks at math. I guess we'll give her the easy questions. You're like, no, I Shauna really struggles at math. And I'm going to find a way to scaffold her learning to get her to the point so that she can excel just like everybody else in the class, right? So I right. interpret that high academic expectations and the structures and supports necessary to help me meet those expectations as caring for me, right? Mm. I can tell you care about me more than just a grade on on a math paper, but you, you want to help understand how I learn so that you can help me learn what you're trying to teach me. So that relationship actually can be the bridge to motivation, right? I, so maybe I come to your class and I'm like, oh, Joe, I, Mr. Bishop is a great guy. And I'll come to his class because he's nice and he's he doesn't embarrass me mm. when I'm doing my work. He doesn't shame me when I mm. get something wrong. And so I come to your class and I try, and but mostly I'm doing it for you, right? I'm like, I, I don't want to disappoint him. He really mm. loves this math and he seems to think I'm great. So fine, I'll do the math. And then sure enough, I start to get better, right? I'm like, oh, look. Hey, I got a B or I got a I got a A minus or finally I'm not completely failing this test <laughs> or this assessment or I can I have the confidence to go up to the whiteboard and actually show my work and show my classmates what I did. And sure enough, eventually I actually feel like hey, I'm pretty good at math. And as a, as a high school student or a middle school student who's developing my identity as an adolescent, who's starting to go out on my own and figure out what am I good at? What am I not good at? Who am I? Mm. Right? Trying to figure out my own sense of self and identity. Who is Shauna? And at that same critical moment, I've got a math teacher who's pushing me and encouraging me and supporting me. Right? Mm. Mr. Bishop. Yeah. And sure enough, I'm like, you know what? I actually am pretty good at math, it mm. turns out. And I'm going to start going to Mr. Bishop's class, not because he's friendly and nice, but because I actually like what he's teaching me and mm. I'm learning and I like how learning feels because I know humans like to learn. We know that humans like to learn and we are built to learn. Right. And somehow you've created the conditions for me, despite me having like some resistance to your subject area, the relationship that I had with you allowed me to take an academic risk to take and receive some feedback, to try something a little bit harder. You developed a curriculum and instructional learning opportunities that were right in my zone of proximal development, right? You were pushing me where I needed to be pushed. You put me in pairs with students who are a little bit more expert than me so I could see that it could be done. Right. And sure enough, here you have me, this emerging adolescent who all of a sudden loves math. And I think I'm going to take the next hardest class next year. And I'm going to do more than the minimum requirement to graduate. Because actually math is now part of my identity. And I and I actually want to do it. So in that way, this positive relationship, like I took you through the whole <laughs> storyline no, no. no, here. No, that was a great example. Yeah, but, but that what started off as a, a positive developmental relationship between a student and a teacher, plus 
high academic expectations, Mm -hmm. plus opportunities to learn and develop with my peers in a socially, emotionally rich and safe environment, Mm. then Lan ended up with me motivated to push myself to actually go from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation because now this is part of my identity and who I am. And then maybe I actually will major in math when I get to college or even if I don't, who cares? Guess what? I feel that I'm a learner. I feel that I'm a scholar. I feel what I've learned also is that even if there's something I'm not particularly good at at the beginning, that under the right conditions, and one of those conditions being a strong relationship, I actually can do hard things. Mm. And that's a that's a critical learning moment for students in school. And imagine students who don't have that, who don't ever get that opportunity uh, to experience being pushed and challenged and cared for. It makes that 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 shift from extrinsic to intrinsic much more difficult. I think another key piece of that science of learning is understanding that the brain is malleable, mm-hmm. understanding that context matters greatly for learning. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't underestimate the environment. Mm-hmm. And creating the conditions for learning are important. And that's a lot of things, right? It's the academic component. It's what does teaching and learning look like and feel like for students and teachers in the classroom. It's what supports are available for students who are struggling. How does the system notice you know, how is the system attuned and responsive to student needs, right, right? Right. There's not a structure in place for a teacher to recognize when a student is struggling and then have resources and uh, supports available to to respond to those student needs. Then we're missing a big opportunity for learning and missing, especially as kids become adolescents, uh, missing an opportunity for them to feel like they belong in school, mm. right? Yep. And if you don't feel like you belong somewhere then why on earth would you care to keep trying? Right. If all of the messages you've gotten over time are you're not good enough, you don't have what it takes to do this, or you don't belong here, or I don't care about you, then fine. By the time a student gets to middle school and high school, they're going to say, well, I, <laughs> then I'm going to release this whole connection to school, mm. and it doesn't need to be part of my identity because I need to maintain myself, my sense of self-concept. Mm. And so when schools understand that what we're tasked with is not just the activity of teaching and learning and ensuring that children learn academic content, right. but also helping them simultaneously develop into adults, into independent, free-thinking citizens who will be part of our society, our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues. Right. Our job is much broader than the academic content, right? So there was a survey done several years ago of uh, employers in the United States and asking them, what are the things that you're looking for in new employees? Or what, what, what do you think is the most important thing for new employees? And a, a huge percentage of them, a majority said, what we want is people who are collaborative, mm. who know how to communicate, who can take and receive feedback, who don't crumble under an evaluation, right? Uh, but but right. recognize how to grow. Who are tenacious? Who can set goals? Who are good colleagues? Have are positive with their colleagues? Are respectful to their supervisors? Know when to push. Know when to step back. Know when to speak. Know when to be silent. All of those things are actually social emotional competencies. And you'll notice that none of the employers said, oh, we wish our engineers had more math skills. That's important. Mm. But guess what? Math can be learned. Mm. Like those technical skills can be learned, right? If I'm not the best 
if I, if I don't make the best PowerPoint slides, uh, but I'm really good at collaborating with folks and really good at sharing ideas and setting goals and uh, following through and I can manage relationships and I'm wonderful in customer service, an employer might want that more than good PowerPoint skills because you can teach someone to make a good PowerPoint. Sure, shoot, there's all sorts of templates. You don't even need <laughs> to really know how to do it very well. And it's those technical skills that are important, but they're not everything. And it's that social emotional component that is another key piece of that science of learning and development that I think is underestimated in our schools. I do think, however, in this last couple of years of COVID, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with the school closures and people trying to get back into space with one another, SEL, social emotional learning, has become more more evident as more important than ever before, I think. Mm. I think prior to the pandemic, there was a huge groundswelling of folks and educators who were saying, hey, this is important. This is really important for learning, right? We had the science of learning and development that kind of concretized this idea that all learning is social, emotional, and cognitive, that right. they're not, you can't separate them, right? Right. We learned about the limbic system in our brain, that that system in our brain that is responsible for helping us manage emotions to regulate reactivity is also the same part of the brain that's structurally and functionally integrated and is responsible for uh, for memory and learning and, uh, you know, all of the things that you need to be a, a learner and that you can't separate the, the emotional and the academic and the right. cognitive, that they actually are one in the same and mutually reinforcing. Right. And so People knew that prior to COVID, but I think being socially separated from people and not being in that same space kind of underscored the importance of the social nature of learning. I don't know if this is right to say, but I, I feel like in some ways COVID kind of opened the door to SEL being more obviously important for folks. And it like gone are the days of educators or anyone saying, okay, leave your, leave your drama, leave your emotions at the door. Mm. When we come into this room, we're going to do English or we're going to do math or we're doing science. Like don't bring any of that other stuff in this room. I, I remember teachers saying that to me, like after there was a kerfuffle on the playground, right. uh, teachers saying, leave all that on the, on the in, at the recess yard, on the play yard. Don't mm. bring that in here. Mm. Well, it's actually, you can't do that. Mm. If we're really creating learning experiences that are going to move students, that are going to help them, you know, determine who they want to be, who they are, what they like and don't like, how they want to move in this world, where they want to throw all of their cognitive, you know, activity, what do they want to investigate and learn more about, we have to engage the emotions. And, you know, Mary Helen Imordino Yang at USC is a really uh, strong researcher around this idea of emotions, learning, and the brain. Yep. You know, her research is seminal in that regard. Um, there's a lot out there now. We know a lot more about how the brain learns. And I think it's important for schools to design for that, right? We could have advisories more regularly in secondary schools, right? So I think that tight connection between teacher and student is really solid in elementary, right? Where you have the same teacher yep. for English, math, science, you know, music. Sometimes it's all your primary teacher and that that relationship between that group of elementary students and that primary teacher are, is really strong. And somehow we've assumed that secondary students just, okay, great. Now you can walk and talk all on your own. You'll be fine. <laughs> you know, we kind of wash our hands. It's yep. like, you're on your own. Go from class to class. Good luck with that. And, and we could be doing a lot more. You know, a lot of the most successful schools 
in our country have a strong advisory system where there's a home base, where someone, at least one person on campus, intentionally knows every child really well, where every student is well known. Some of that can be done with looping, where you have the same teacher multiple years. Those are just some examples that have been around for a long time. But we could also do it more intentionally in classrooms, where you know, teachers can take the time to get to know each student. And I, I think, you know, I say all that, and then I also want to really speak for teachers in some ways. Like, I, I reflect on being a high school English teacher and having 180 students that I was responsible for. And having the chance to know each one of them well and their learning styles really well was not optimal conditions for no. teaching. No. At all, right? And that's a structure that if if we can figure out how to undo that, I think we'd probably have more teachers yep. who would last longer and not be burned out. And so there's a part of me that whenever I even say this stuff out loud, I think to myself, gosh, if I was a high school teacher right now with 180 students and this Shauna person was telling me that I need to get to know each kid individually, I'd be like, are you kidding me? I need a whole other day yeah. every week to get to know every kid. And so that makes me wonder like how, how you know, and some of what we outlined in the chapter around how can we set up schools to get more creative about time, to get more creative about what e the school day looks like for students. I think Shauna, you've, you've set up for us, I mean, an opportunity to think about a lot at its core, we need incredible professionals who are totally committed to their students. And I think we, we all can only hope that our kids will have a Dr. Cook who will say, you are Macbeth material. Yes, you can read Caesar, <laughs> but you are Macbeth material. So I think, how do we translate that Macbeth thinking into the policy space, <laughs> right? How do, how do our students feel loved? Um, how can they belong? Mm -hmm. I think You've really inspired us, Shauna, to think about what's possible when we believe in our kids, when we believe in a better system, and when we see the potential and we take the time, even if it's 180 kids. But I, I think yeah. as, you, as you've outlined, policy tends to be more of a hurdle than, than a help at this point. So I, I would say for all of you, if you want to hear more from Dr. Cook, Dr. Darlene Hammond, read Our Children Can't Wait, read their chapter, and be inspired of what's possible and Shauna, I just want to thank you for all that you've done and for being, for teaching me a lot, honestly, and for just for being there as, as, as a friend and colleague. And I can't wait to keep working with you and um, just honored to have you on, on the show today. Oh, thanks, Joe. Likewise. <laughs> we organized part one and part two of this episode around a few themes that are present in Shauna's story and Linda's interview guided by research on how students best learn and grow. Number one, the brain is malleable, meaning we adapt based on experiences and relationships during our lifetime and improve our ability to think and process new information. Number two, we all grow at a different speed. Number three, healthy relationships are the secret sauce for healthy development and learning. Number four, learning is a social and emotional academic process, a symphony playing together at the same time. Number five, we build upon our previous experiences and knowledge to make sense of new information. And finally, adversity, trauma, 
and poor conditions limit and often prohibit students from reaching their potential. That's exactly why we'll dig into topics like health, housing, safety, and environmental factors in the episodes ahead, and why they should be on the radar of every lawmaker and voter in America. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools and the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is the creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait. Available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Winhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.